Welcome to the last episode of Tisky Sao before Britain goes into a four-day weekend to celebrate 70 years of our Queen living rent-free in London's biggest home. We will have a couple of royal-related stories for you tonight, but first, we're talking about the man who wanted to be world king and why his reign might be coming to an end. I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Do you have any Jubilee-themed street parties coming up or maybe celebrations for if Boris Johnson gets dethroned? I am moving house at the weekend. So I'm doing like the worst, most awful possible thing that you can ever do this bank holiday weekend, which is probably fitting with how I feel about the monarchy. Boris Johnson had hoped the release of the Sue Gray report would put a line under Partygate, but that hasn't happened. Yesterday, Johnson's own ethics advisor called for him to explain how receiving a fixed penalty notice was consistent with the ministerial code, and there's now speculation a confidence vote could come as soon as next week. This was former Tory leader William Haig speaking to Times Radio. I think the Sue Gray report has been one of those sort of slow fuse explosions in politics you know it's still going along uh, a lot of people misread it really the events of last week as meaning oh, the the trouble is over you know boris is free and um that's actually not the mood in the conservative party which is very very troubled about the contents of that report and i think they're moving toward either, either next week or around the end of june uh, they are moving towards having having a ballot, it looks like that. To launch a vote of no confidence, 15% of Conservative MPs would need to write a letter to the chair of the 1922 committee. Um, that works out as 54 MPs in this parliament. That's how many would have to write those letters. The process is famously secret. And unsurprisingly, Graham Brady, who chairs that committee, was yesterday tight-lipped about how many letters he had received so far. People are always free to ask me these questions, but it's a confidential process and uh, I will retain my uh, discretion and uh, I'll say nothing more at the moment. Are you expecting a busy few days ahead? I'm always busy. So there is no official signal as to how close we are to that 54 threshold, but we can get some sense by how many MPs have stated publicly that they have no faith in the Prime Minister. According to The Guardian, that now stands at 45, so getting pretty close. This morning, though, Dominic Raab played down talk of a coup. To be honest with you, votes are no confidence, leadership contests, all of that is yet more Westminster talking to itself, not talking to the public, not talking to our constituents. And I think the vast majority of MPs uh, respect, recognise and agree with that. The, the two people in, in the House of Commons who want a leadership contest, who talk about it every time in the House of Commons, are Keir Starmer and Ian Blackford for the SNP. And at least but, 40 of your MPs. But, but, but in fact, they're not asking for it because they think it's in the public interest or indeed in the Conservative interest. They think there's some political gain for them in doing so. And again, that's a point which I think uh, senior members uh, of the parliamentary party also make. Later in the day, this was Nadine Doris's take. I can assure you that the overwhelming number of Conservative MPs are fully behind the Prime Minister, absolutely back him. There is, obviously, I think probably led by one or two individuals a campaign behind the scenes to to try, attempt to remove the Prime Minister for individual reasons to do with personal ambition and and other reasons. Who's leading but, it? You know, yeah, well, I've uh, I, I have no idea. 
Well, if you have no idea, Nadine, how do you know there's only one or two of them? It doesn't add up, but it's Nadine Doris. It doesn't need to. Dahlia, could Boris Johnson be about to be toppled? I mean, it's it's hard to say. Uh, 58% of the British public think that he should resign, which is certainly uh, a vote of no confidence from, from the public. But ultimately, you know, this is in the hands of Tory cabinet and Tory backbenchers. And I think a lot of them probably remain quite attached to the Johnson project. And there isn't, I think at the moment, a clear inheritor of the position um, that they would necessarily prefer over Johnson. But given that his position is becoming more and more fragile, um, I do think, you know, what does concern me is that over the next few weeks, we will see some pretty dirty tricks being pulled by him in order to reconsolidate his base, both within the party and amongst uh, Tory voters, because that's what we see uh, when politicians like Johnson find themselves in hot water. They sort of go to the the backbencher baiting uh, policies in order to secure their base. Um, we saw it with the laughable replacing metric measurements with imperial measurements policy announcement or, you know, suggestion recently. You know, that was there for no other reason other than to rile up like bunting conservatives on the, the bank holiday weekend, the Jubilee weekend, uh, and essentially cause logistical uh, nightmares. And what I worry about is that over the coming weeks, as his position becomes more untenable, um, that we will see further reactionary statements and provocations in the areas of immigration, in criminal justice, and of course, sort of culture war stuff, as this is where people like Johnson go to when they feel like they're on on shaky ground. Um, We saw it, you know, uh, in the summer of last year, when Boris Johnson, when he was in hot water about his COVID policy, about lockdown easing, when we were still having really high levels of COVID hospitalizations, he decided to pick a fight with some university students over a painting of the Queen in their common room. Um, so that is something to look out for here. Um, and that is Johnson's particular form of political strategy that he has honed uh, over several years. And my worry is which community is going to pay the price uh, in order for him to try and, and cling on to what is now pretty illegitimate power. Good point. I mean, I suppose it's double-sided, isn't it? Because the more desperate he gets, potentially the more vicious he's going to be. But the more desperate he gets also in a way, the less damage he can do. I do think that if he now tries to start some bizarre culture war, people aren't going to take it very seriously because it's so transparent what he's doing. And as we're going to see in an interview later with Mumsnet readers, he has, I think, become kind of a figure of fun and ridicule and actually more than that, kind of hatred from so many people in the country right now. And lots of commentary is is saying at the moment that one of the reasons why this is happening now is because Parliament is in recess, so MPs are talking to their actual constituents and they realize how much just undiluted hatred there is for Boris Johnson. And they can't possibly imagine that he'll ever be able to recover. And they think that, you know, if they don't now speak out against him, that's going to start to to damage their own electoral prospects. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I'm sure there are many Tory MPs who who feel that Boris Johnson, that's, you know, holds their politics and will further their politics. I think there are also a lot of them who just think, what's the alternative at this this point? But I, I think probably he will have a vote of no confidence this this month, and it will be exciting. Um, I'm licking my lips for it. 
Let's talk about some more details from the past 48 hours, because the latest round of Jeopardy for Boris Johnson was prompted by words in the annual report of his ethics advisor, Lord Gate. It's a position appointed by the Prime Minister, so not genuinely independent, even if it's in the title, but it was still very critical. In the report, he said this, In the case of the fixed penalty notice recently issued to and paid by the Prime Minister, a legitimate question has arisen as to whether those facts alone might have constituted a breach of the overarching duty within the ministerial code of complying with the law. It may be that the Prime Minister considers that no such breach of his ministerial code has occurred. In that case, I believe a Prime Minister should respond accordingly, setting out his case in public. The ministerial code, we've been mentioning it quite a lot on shows recently. It's a set of rules government ministers, including the Prime Minister, are supposed to abide by. Traditionally, if you break the code, you are expected to resign. Gate went on to say, I have repeatedly counseled the Prime Minister's official and political advisers that the Prime Minister should be ready to offer public comment on his obligations under the ministerial code, even if he has judged himself not to be in breach. This has been my standing advice, which I was assured had been conveyed to the Prime Minister. Its purpose has simply been to ensure that the Prime Minister should publicly be seen to take responsibility for his own conduct under his own ministerial code. That advice has not been heeded, and in relation to the allegations about unlawful gatherings in Downing Street, the Prime Minister has made not a single public reference to the ministerial code. Kind of a niche complaint, you know, he hasn't talked specifically about the ministerial code, but I suppose this guy feels that his job, his raison d'etre is to enforce this thing, and basically... Boris Johnson is saying, this, this, this doesn't matter, I'll do what I want. The situation of Boris Johnson not taking this advice from, from Lord Gate, not um, taking that advice to speak about why he doesn't think he has broken the ministerial code, is that Gate has threatened to resign. And apparently that's a course of action he is still currently considering. And it's worth noting, he would be the second person in the role to quit within two years. So Gate's predecessor resigned when Boris Johnson rejected his verdict that Priti Patel had broken the ministerial code. So they said, we think this has happened, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson says, well, I don't really like your result. I'm overriding it. Priti Patel can stay in her job. For his part, Boris Johnson responded to Guy by saying that no one had told him about those concerns and that he didn't think he broke the ministerial code because he wasn't aware he was breaking his own laws. So he's saying it was inadvertent. I didn't mean to do it. And so therefore, it's fine. Dahlia, it seems that on these shows we're increasingly bringing up these sort of quite esoteric roles and these esoteric different committees that are supposed to have some say over what the Prime Minister can and can't do. And when we look at them in detail, generally we say, actually, even though they're called independent, they're not particularly independent. But it does seem, you know, from statements like this and from what we're hearing from kind of all angles now, is that there are lots of people in powerful positions in this country who feel like you know, Boris Johnson is kind of making a fool of them and making a fool of their jobs. And they want to speak out because, you know, he's making them look stupid. Yeah. And I guess there is a sense that at this point, uh, what is there to to lose by by taking this, this stand? Um, but of course, like, as I've said before, Johnson's Teflon nature, his ability to seemingly bounce back from endless scandal, that is not a consequence of his inherent political savviness or rhetoric or anything like that. It's because he's had layers of institutional protection, whether it's protection from his networks in the media, from his Eton education, whatever you want to you call it. So for years, despite immense scandal, 
that has rocked Boris Johnson. You know, this is not the first time that he has been caught red-handed lying in this way. People in these powerful positions have continually uh, helped him retain power, be it in whether they are individuals in the media or, or in, the, in, in politics. Uh, despite the clear damage that him having any form of power, whether it's political power or cultural power, that that is uh, damaging and dangerous to to the British public. So is it likely that this class of people who have been willing to back Boris Johnson uh, and elevate him to the highest level of office in this country, that they have, you know, supported him despite his opportunistic lies throughout the Brexit campaign? his countless editorial scandals, such as making up quotes when he was a journalist at The Telegraph, him handing taxpayer grants to his mistress or his girlfriend or whatever. Is it likely that they have had a sudden dramatic change of values where now they have decided that lying to the public, that being corrupt, that having one rule for the powerful and another for everyone else is acceptable? It's unlikely that they've had that sudden change of heart. What we're seeing here is instead a sense that not that he is exceptionally good at lying, but that he is actually pretty bad at it. You know, it will be very much more because he is unable to cover his tracks. He has been unable in this scandal to cover his tracks and keep stuff in the shadows that otherwise within this system, these things would normally be able to be concealed. I think figures like Johnson, figures like Trump, they actually in many ways make visible the fundamental content with which the political class holds us, primarily by, by being very bad at it. You know? So would shifting Boris Johnson, would pushing him to resign, would that actually mean that we don't have to reckon with the system that produced and empowered Johnson? Of course it wouldn't. You know, This kind of deception of the public this kind of um, corruption, this un- unquestioned corruption, that is something that is endemic to our political system. And it has had far graver consequences. You know, Tony Blair misled Parliament into a war that killed a million people. David Cameron uh, implemented 10 years of brutal austerity under what was essentially an economic lie. And so the ability of politicians to, with the help of the media, uh, mislead the public in ways that have far more damaging consequences than these parties do, that's not going to be solved by simply shifting Boris Johnson. And many of the people that are now publicly taking a stand, the class of people that are now taking a stand because they've seen that it is no longer politically tenable to continue backing Boris Johnson, it's not due to a fundamental desire to change the culture and the system that produced Johnson. It's because Johnson himself is no longer able to essentially keep that system intact because of how transparent his contempt for the public is, as has been revealed throughout this Partygate scandal. Yes, but my big worry about all of this is when you listen to the Tory MPs sort of saying why he has to go, they say he can't govern effectively because he's, you know, lost the respect of everyone and it's complete chaos from day to day. Now, I don't know about you, but I quite like it when a Tory government can't govern effectively, because when they can govern effectively, really bad shit happens. So as you, as you were saying, the David Cameron, George Osborne era was fairly functional. You know, it wasn't that there was scandals every day, and everyone was constantly calling for different people to resign. No, fairly functional government, actually, but it was functional government, which was used to enforce 
years of brutal austerity, which led to lots and lots of unnecessary deaths and so much unnecessary hardship. So if until the next general election, we have a completely dysfunctional Tory government, I can think of worse things we could have. Um, let's go to some comments, some interesting ones. Watching the show over on Twitch, Carl Alexander Roster says, if there is a vote of no confidence, he'll probably win if marginally and therefore be safe for another year. It's useful to lay out exactly what will happen. So if, if these 54 letters come in, then I think it all happens quite quickly, actually. They have a vote of no confidence in quite a short period of time. If Boris Johnson wins that, of course, he stays on and he is then formally safe for another year. If he loses that, then a leadership election is launched and he is not allowed to stand in it. The point you raise is an important one. If he wins the vote of no confidence, they can't call for another one within the next 12 months. So in theory, he is safe for the rest of that time. Though in practice, it has often been the case that if a vote of no confidence is close, the prime minister starts to look like a, a dead duck and, and they don't last very long. So I think Theresa May, she did win her vote of no confidence. I'm not exactly sure what, what year it was. Presumably it was sort of the start of 2019 or the end of 2018. But then she lost so much um, sort of command of the party by virtue of how close it was that she was gone within seven months. So even if he wins it, it doesn't mean he will necessarily be there for another year. Let's go straight to our next story. Boris Johnson has given an interview to the CEO of Mumsnet, and it was pretty brutal. Here is how it started. Thank you so much for Absolutely sitting down great. with us. We know how busy you are. Really appreciate the time. Um, I'm going to kick off first with a question about trust and integrity, because of the many, many hundreds of questions we got on Mumsnet, about half were on this subject. Yes. So, as you know, I'm going to ask user questions to you. Yes. So here we go. Um, this is a pretty typical question that sums up the mood on Mumsnet, I'd say, from a user who goes by the name of Tim Booth's Eyes. She'd like to know, why should we believe anything you say when it has been proven you're a habitual liar? <laughs> that was so well delivered. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can I just say, everyone thinks you're an asshole. That's essentially <laughs> what that was. Um, let's see how he, how he recovers from that. How does he come back? Well, I, uh, first of all, uh, don't agree with the, the conclusion that, uh, that uh, Tim, uh, the questioner asked, but uh, or the premise of the question. But look, uh, I think the, the best thing, the best way for me to answer that, that is to say, uh, look at what I get on and deliver and what I say I'm going to, to, to deliver. And uh, that's what I'm in politics to do, to try to make life better for people if I possibly can. Uh, I'm there to try to uh, get the country. I was elected to, at, a, at a particularly difficult time in politics to get some tough things done. Uh, they then became, things then became, if anything, even more difficult because of the pandemic. Uh, but if you look at uh, what we're doing, we're, we're getting on and, and delivering. And uh, I, I would say, you know, look at getting many more police out on the streets to make our, our streets safer. Uh, we've already... Uh, got about 13,000 more, neighborhood crime down uh, substantially. Um, look at what we've, we've done with our NHS, which I made a big thing about. So I think we're, we're going so, so so to come on. My answer about trust is um, people throw all sorts of accusations at me about all sorts of things. Uh, ever since I, I drove around on, on, with a sign on, on a bus, and, and they have all sorts of reasons for saying that. 
but uh, I think you just got to look at the record of, of what I what okay. I deliver. That record for you includes tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths after Johnson delayed two lockdowns, the projected biggest fall in living standards since records began, that's what we're facing this year, and the longest NHS delays in living memory. I'm also not sure why he says people have accused him of lying ever since he offered £350 million for the NHS on the side of a bus. We've been calling him a liar way longer than that, um, and with good reason indeed. He'd already lost at least three jobs for being found out telling porkies, even before um, the Brexit campaign began. Um, it's worth noting that wasn't the only tough question directed at the Prime Minister. On a related issue, Che Guevara's hamster asks, why have you removed the Nolan principles, namely integrity, objectivity, accountability, transparency, honesty, honesty and leadership in the public interest from the forward of the ministerial code? Obviously, we had a lot of questions about Party Partygate. Yeah. Well, Wollstonecraft asks, as a teacher, I would lose my job if I broke the law. Why doesn't the same apply to the Prime Minister? Another question, it gets it's getting weird, asked, can you honestly say it's more important to hold leaving drinks for a colleague who you could hold an event for after restrictions loosened than it was for the rest of the country to say goodbye to loved ones at funerals? We're not going to show you the answers because you've seen enough of Boris Johnson blabbing. You can look on YouTube if you want to see what he had to say. Dahlia, I want to bring you in and just, I mean, I really enjoyed seeing Boris Johnson destroyed by someone called Che Guevara's hamster and someone else called, this is getting weird. <laughs> this is what the internet was made for, really. Like, <laughs> can it just be this over and over again, rather than all of the nonsense that we have to deal with? I can't believe uh, that he agreed to do that. You know, Mumsnet is like a notoriously quite a ruthless uh, platform. I'm, I'm glad that that ruthlessness is being directed towards someone who actually has power rather than, you know, random trans people on the internet. Um, but... I think so. I think that I'm surprised that at this moment he's not sort of avoiding the public eye as much as possible. And of course, in, in that answer, he goes straight into talking about putting more police on the streets, which is, again, the exact kind of moral panic baiting that I would expect from Boris Johnson uh, at the moment. What good is there putting more police on the streets when it's the Met police that are actually actually were present at a lot of these law-breaking parties and not only didn't intervene, but actually then delayed uh, the investigation into, into these parties. So clearly, you know, the idea that clearly, you know, it would make sense that he would be pro sort of putting more police on the streets, but it is more a fact of like going down that sort of personal security, moral panic, you're not safe, we're going to make you safe, we're going to protect you from the criminals and the whatever, you know, inserts other kind of stigmatized minority here. That's the exact kind of tack that I would be expecting him to go down right now. And I guess for me, as you've sort of mentioned throughout this, this show, why this is not the first time that we have found that we know Boris Johnson to be a liar. And so for me, the question is, where was all this heat when he was in the lead up to becoming prime minister? You know, now that he has become prime minister, it's incredibly difficult to remove him from that position of power, which is a position that has very tangible power on people's lives. And it's a power that he has proven himself throughout his political and journalistic career to be incredibly reckless with. This should have happened five or six years ago. Now that he is prime minister, we don't have the tools 
unless we wait until another election, we are now relying on a couple of Tory backbenchers to essentially save us from this man, which is really like this kind of work from the media side and also from uh, people within government, from people within the Conservative Party. This kind of work needed to have been done five or six years ago. And so when I see things like this, it's like it's satisfying to watch. But it's also like, what are the systems that put this man into place? Because this is not someone who entered political life yesterday. You know, this is someone who has been in political and public life for several years and has not only not been held accountable, but has been actively cultivated by many of the institutions that are now claiming uh, to be holding him um, to account. I know you've said previously that sort of when Boris Johnson is weak, one thing you might see is him sort of attacking stigmatized minorities. I mean, I suppose criminals isn't necessarily a category of that, although some, you know, some criminals are just stigmatized minority. Lots of crimes shouldn't really be crimes. But you're saying it could get nasty, you know, he could be stoking those culture wars. The one positive thing of him sort of in this little death spiral is he has to take all of these weird risks. So you might remember in the 2019 general election, so Boris Johnson barely actually appeared, you know, he didn't really do any interviews because he thought, look, I'm in a position, my get Brexit done, you know, policy is going to win me this election. I don't want any slip ups. He was quite reserved, quite small C conservative. Now, because you know everyone already hates him, it looks like his leadership's about to crumble. He's really taking these risks. Like you said, Dahlia, it's, it's surprising that he, he let this happen. He let these Che Guevara's hamster lay into him on, on YouTube. But I think we might see more and more of these kind of almost desperate set pieces that he's doing because he feels like he has no alternative. I, mean, I saw on Twitter yesterday that potentially they're planning to have sort of COVID-style press conferences with charts, but instead of Chris Whitty, it will be economists and they'll be talking about the cost of living. So I can imagine, again, loads and loads of questions about all of the people who are just fundamentally struggling during this cost of living crisis, despite, you know, as we've said, Rishi Sunak's package wasn't the worst in the world, but it hasn't, as Miata Fambula, who came on that show, said, hasn't really resolved any of the problems that were created by austerity. So you're going to have day after day of them answering questions about the huge backlogs in the NHS and stuff, which you definitely wouldn't see if they were ahead. But because they're desperate, we're going to see some risky interviews, I think. Dahlia, if you were an advisor to Boris Johnson, you've got any sort of crazy things up your sleeve, you'd say, you know, there's nothing to lose here. Have a last gasp, go dancing on ice. I don't know, something, something along those lines. <laughs> if I was his PR advisor, I would shove him back in that freezer and get on the first <laughs> plane to the Bahamas. <laughs> I'd be out of here. <laughs> Fair answer. I respect that. Let's go straight to our next story. Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner have both received questionnaires from Durham Police in relation to a curry and beer during lockdown. The Guardian report this. Detectives are considering interviewing the Labour leader face-to-face and the uncertainty around Starmer's continued leadership at the party will continue for weeks. As well as the Labour leader and his deputy, questionnaires have also been sent to other Labour activists police believe were at the gathering in the Durham constituency office. The questionnaires are legal documents. After Starmer and Rayner complete and return them to police, officers will then compare their responses with other information from other sources. Police will assess the veracity of their responses and whether the threshold for a fine is met for Starmer or Rayner. So that's what's going on. You could have a face-to-face interview between the police and Keir Starmer. I would like to see that filmed. I presume it won't be. On the significance of the questionnaires, Paul Brand, who's been covering Partygate very closely, he said this... Remember that the Met only issued questionnaires to people it thought had potentially breached COVID rules. It didn't just blanket question everyone at a certain event. 
Facts Dharma and Rayner have received a questionnaire from Durham Police is a serious concern for Labour. It is a serious concern for Labour, and it's a bigger one for Starmer and Rayner, who have both said they'll resign if they are fined. And it seems clear there are already MPs lining up to replace them, chomping at the bit to have their go at the top job. Wes Streeting is probably the most often mentioned of the contenders. Yesterday, the iPaper revealed he signed a book deal for a memoir to be released next year. Paul War reports, The childhood memoir has yet to have a title and is a slow burn as it won't appear until next year. It will not be about politics or policy directly, but it will recount the shadow health secretary's childhood as the son of a teenage parent on a council estate in London's East End. He's already spoken movingly about being on free school meals and something that's more topical than ever, the lights going out at home because his mother couldn't afford to feed the electricity meter. Paul War also tweeted this. So he said, Wes Streeting's memoir will focus on his childhood growing up on a council estate in Stepney, East London, the son of teenage parents. Wes has said that he was more likely to end up in prison, where both his maternal grandparents spent time, than in Parliament. Now, given there are 85,000 people in prisons in the UK and only 650 people in Parliament, it's not a particularly remarkable claim, but I have no doubt it will be a gripping read. Another contender for the leadership is Lisa Nandy, and she is also writing a book. So of that page-turner, Paul War writes... Originally intended to set out her thoughts on global affairs when she was shadow foreign secretary, it is now more focused on how Labour should win back the working class votes it has lost. Her book currently lacks a title too. It was going to be called The Tilt to reflect its theme of tilting back power from London to other parts of Britain, but it will build on her decadive work on the town's agenda, exploring how small towns can be given the chance to create high-skilled, stable jobs. You'll know, as we discussed on Monday, Keir Starmer has also signed a book deal, which means for a party with so little to say, there'll be a lot of ink spilled by the shadow cabinet. Dahlia, I want your take on on Starmer's questionnaire and all of these books that everyone in a Labour Party with no policies is finding the time to write. The tilt really is a bad name for a book. (laughs) Like, it's like, oh, it means about how she's going to tilt. It's like, no one gets, like, if you have to explain it, it's not a good title. And no one gets anything from that other than, like, it's just very, very weird. I'm like, who's your marketer? That's not, not a good name. Anyway, I mean, I think that this entire thing is, is a very transparent push driven by the Tories in order to create a kind of both sides narrative here. Obviously, you know, the Tories have found themselves in, in deep hot water that they can't get out of. And so they're like, okay, well, let's just basically make this into a they're both as bad as each other narrative, you know, and I'm I'm never really in a rush to defend Keir Starmer. But in this case, it's it's pretty obvious to me that the Tories have been pushing for this to be a story in order to water down the effect uh, of Partygate. To me, the details of the two are really quite different. Uh, One concerns a systemic culture of rule breaking, a systemic culture of contempt for workers, you know, wine time Fridays, people getting so drunk that they're vomiting, being abusive towards uh, workers. So that is, you know, parties with hundreds of people invited. The other one is a single instance of a curry being ordered and drinks being ordered for people who are working together at a rally. Um, But the headlines are both party leaders are being investigated by the police. And as we saw with Labour's really weak performance in the May elections, it seems like 
it's maybe having a bit of an in- the intended effect of kind of diluting the exceptional pressure that is being put on on the Tories. Because and, and what's so funny to me about this is that when it comes to Starmer's trustworthiness, there are many far graver violations that can be pointed to that are far more concrete evidence of the fact that he talks through both sides of his mouth, that he is not really to be trusted. You know, like the fact that he essentially lied to the Labour Party membership about his intentions and the program that he was going to deliver as leader of the party, or the fact that he treated the people who elected him as as leader of the Labour Party, he's treated them with utter uh, contempt. The fact that he suspended Corbyn from the Labour Party whilst also welcoming an ex-Tory who believes in criminalising traveller communities. These are all much stronger examples of Starmer's character as a leader and an indication of how he would govern uh, if he became prime minister of this country. This particular scandal, which isn't to me really a scandal, is the least of Starmer's misdeeds. And so for that reason, it's clear to me that it's much more of a political job rather than an actual kind of in any way equivalence between what we are talking about when it comes to what's been happening with the Conservative Party with and with Boris Johnson's office and, you know, this one event that is being made uh, a lot a lot out of. I think it's quite clear the politics behind this rather than a sincere conversation about Starmer's trustworthiness and whether or not he deserves to be prime minister, which is definitely a conversation I would be up for engaging in, but not on these terms. I agree with you completely on this not being at all the same as what went on in Downing Street. I think people are rightly incredibly angry about what happened in Downing Street because it really was putting up two fingers to to people who suffered during the COVID pandemic, however they suffered. You know, if it was from being lonely by not going to social events, if it was not being able to see people who were dying, if it was, you know, working super long hours in the NHS and then not feeling like, oh, we're working so hard that we have to have a party at the end of the day because that was against the rules. So the Keir Starmer thing, completely different, beer, curry, it was also a different different time. It was sort of like towards the end of, of the lockdown in 2021. The atmosphere, the culture was really different then. And yeah, it doesn't seem like a particularly egregious rule breach. I do also, in a way though, struggle to have that much sympathy for him. And it's not because of other issues. I agree with you that, you know, he's untrustworthy for, for a number of reasons. But I do think he has made this bed for himself. And I think that because his argument when it comes to what's wrong with what Boris Johnson does, sometimes he's kept it to what you have done, disrespected the sacrifices that people made during the COVID pandemic and during lockdown, etc., which is the correct argument to make. It has also often been, you don't respect the rules, you break the rules, and also the police are always going to be right, right? So because Keir Starmer is like, the rules are sacrosanct, the institutions are sacrosanct, what you've done is disrespect the institutions. Then when all the police came out for, with, for Boris Johnson was that sort of fine about the event that was actually not particularly outrageous, which was that, you know, shitty looking birthday party, but didn't fine him for things which look way more outrageous, you know, the party to which 200 people were invited, which he attended, or those parties which seemed to have taken place in his flat. Keir Starmer can't stand up and say, well, you know, it doesn't actually look like the police did a very good job here because he's put his whole leadership on the fact that I respect every single institution that isn't Boris Johnson. I love the Queen. I love the British state. I love the police. Anything they say is correct. And the problem with Boris Johnson is he's out of step with them. And that means if it so happens that the police come out with 
seem like a pretty unjust and weird outcome, whereas which is that Boris Johnson only gets one fixed penalty notice for some birthday party and gets let off for everything else. But then Keir Starmer gets a fixed penalty notice for having a beer and a curry. You know, the argument he should stand up and say is, this is completely ridiculous. How can anyone possibly think these two things are the same? The issue here isn't a police fine. The issue here is the morality of the actions you took. And the morality of your actions is completely different to the morality of my actions. He'd be in a very strong position. I don't think he should resign over this. But what he will have to resign over if he gets that fine is because he has put his whole leadership on I trust the police. The police will have, if he gets fined, given him and Boris Johnson exactly the same punishment, and therefore he will have to go. So it would be a ridiculous, almost kind of banter timeline outcome if it's Keir Starmer that has to resign. But yeah, he's only got himself to blame, is my analysis of this. Let's go to our next story, which is actually also about Keir Starmer, I'm afraid. In a bid to prove his royalist credentials, Labour leader Keir Starmer has written for The Telegraph about the Queen's Jubilee. They reported the news with this headline. Keir Starmer, it's your patriotic duty to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. And say exclusive, Labour leader writing for the Telegraph breaks with Corbyn years when the party was accused of lukewarm support for the monarchy. Something that stands out here, lukewarm support for the monarchy is something you can be accused of and targeted for. Like, Not only do we have to consent to this you know, unelected kind of grotesque institution which just sucks up taxpayers' money takes up prime real estate in our capital city. Not only do we have to sort of passively accept them, even lukewarm support isn't enough. So we, we have to prove we have more than lukewarm support if we want to be you know, treated as legitimate people in this country. But anyway, this headline, what got people really annoyed um, was Keir Starmer saying that it was your patriotic duty to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Sounds, well, one, ridiculous, but also like get off our backs. That probably was a bit misleading from the paper. So the section of the article that Keir Starmer wrote is this that they're referring to. The Jubilee weekend isn't simply a chance for a country wearied by the extraordinary circumstances of the past few years to let its hair down, although it is, of course, your patriotic duty to do just that. So he's not actually saying it's your patriotic duty to be royalist. He's just saying, you know, have a nice weekend. It's a joke. It's more a joke than a commandment. But putting aside um, that troublemaking by the Telegraph, so Keir's piece was still, from my perspective, pretty goddamn gross. Um, so he writes, Her Majesty's commitment to duty and her passion for furthering our country on the world stage have not just benefited each of us, they have also conferred on her the respect and love of people here and across the world. She has shown us that integrity, hard work and selflessness are the antidote to pessimism. Remember, this is a woman who has been waited on her entire life as working class people pay taxes to keep her palace warm. It's not the usual image of selflessness and hard work. In Keir Starmer's mind it is, but for me at least it's not. He goes on to say that just as the Queen has led us through the past 70 years, all that she has taught us about duty, tolerance, humility and responsibility will continue to guide us into this next era. We are a better, brighter country because of her. Our history is richer, our future built on firmer foundations and our great country made greater still by her rule. Now, this is a woman whose courtiers fought to put exemptions in legislation so the palace could continue to discriminate on the basis of race when making employment decisions. It's someone who wears a multi-million pound crown as she tells us what laws will be passed during austerity or cost of living crisis, and someone who's helping her son pay off millions of pounds to someone who's accused him of sex abuse. It's hardly giving tolerance, humility, and responsibility. 
Dahlia, what do you make of Keir Starmer's ode to the Queen? It's shallow. It's deeply embarrassing. Obviously, I'm not the target audience of this op-ed. It's clearly aimed towards some kind of caricature of a red wall voter that has been cooked up in the imagination, the cursed imagination of an overpaid consultant. But even if I was the target audience, I would feel so deeply patronized by this, uh, so deeply insulted, because people can really see through this kind of gesture politics. The term virtue signaling is, is thrown around a lot, and it's usually thrown around like in a really shallow, superficial way, you know, like standing up for marginalized people is not virtue signaling, it's just a virtue. But this is actually one of those very rare instances where virtue signaling is like the perfect description of what we are seeing here. It stinks of inauthenticity, of insincerity, and it, it's clearly a pastiche, like a um, pick and mix of all the different words that have been used to describe the Queen over the past however many years by tabloid media just kind of smushed into one article with a begging tone of like, please, please take mercy on me to the Murdoch press. And the issue here is that this is Starmer's character. And this is why he's deeply unpopular, not only with the Corbyn constituencies, but also with Labour voters as a whole. It's that exact kind of sliminess. You know, he did this exact same thing when he was in his bid to become leader of the Labour Party, where he told people everything they wanted to hear. You know, telling party members, look, I will continue the socialist legacy of Jeremy Corbyn, or even, you know, I'll continue that legacy, but, you know, in a slightly more media friendly package. All the while knowing full well that his intention was not only to not continue that legacy, but to actively purge that legacy from the party's history and to implement a system and a culture that would make sure that that kind of legacy could never, ever reach the light of day again within the Labour Party. And so that exact bag of tricks is being used again, but but on the British public. But I think that now Starmer has a well-earned reputation for being insincere, for no one really knowing what he stands for, and for being a flip-flopper. And I think we saw in the last election, in the May elections, that yes, the Conservative Party are deeply, deeply unpopular, but the Labour Party are not offering anything that would bring people out of their homes to vote for them. And so I would much rather see, rather than op-eds, you know, essentially salivating over the British establishment, I would much rather be seeing some kind of comprehensive program that Starmer could possibly offer the British people to not only end the cost of living crisis, but actually reverse the damage that has been done, the economic damage that has been done to the British people over the past 10 years. You know, as I was looking at these, this op-ed and these very big sort of grandiose words being used by Keir Starmer, I was thinking about an interview that I saw with Annalise Dodds a few weeks ago, actually a few days ago, I think it was, where she was asked, you know, what is one tangible policy that the Labour Party have to offer the British public to help them with the cost of living crisis? And Annalise Dodds says, well, you know, you can just go and look at our website. The fact that there is just such little transformative thinking at a time when the system is so clearly not working 
for everyday people in this country is a major strategic error from Keir Starmer. Even if all he wanted to do was to just get into power and he didn't actually care about what he did with that power afterwards, this is a, a very counterproductive tack because the inauthenticity that reeks from it just confirms everything that people already think about Keir Starmer, which is that he is not to be trusted. Let's go to our final story of the evening. The Queen is not just head of state, but also the head of the Church of England. And the man with the most practical power in that institution is the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. He has been speaking about the royals in the run-up to the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, and he's made headlines thanks to this exchange with ITV's Tom Bradby. The Christian Church is all about forgiveness, as you know, not all about, but it's a sort of... You could say it was pretty central. It was pretty central. And, you know, not very long ago, she walked down the aisle at a service with Prince Andrew on her arm. I think people were very angry about that. There's a sort of question of, you know, does he play any part? Do you think as a nation we need to be forgiving of him? Or do we rightfully (laughs) say, do you know what? We never want to see you in public again. That, that, where should the public sit and where should the monarchy sit on this issue? I think, again, I'm not going to discuss, I don't do sort of pastoral stuff in public, as it were. No, no, but, sure, but it is a matter about, I, I suppose what I'm asking you is how would you advise the public? You know, he is a member of the royal family. I, He's done things that people, you know, exactly what he has and hasn't done, but at the very least, who he was publicly seen with is a matter of very grave public anger. How do we, how do we respond to that? I think we respond to that in two ways. First of all, someone of 96, at a big public occasion, is fully entitled to have one of her children supporting her. You know, that's, that seems a very reasonable thing. Let's get it away from the personality of the Duke of York and simply look at the Queen's position. Secondly, forgiveness really does matter. Um, I think we are, we have become a very, very unforgiving society. There's a difference between consequences and forgiveness. Uh, And again, I'm not going to go into the particular issues here or talk particularly about them, but I think for all of us, one of the ways that we celebrate when we come together is in learning to be a more uh, open and forgiving society. Now, with Prince Andrew, uh, that is a particular case. um, And I think we all have to step back a bit and wait to see what happens. And um, he's seeking to make amends. Um, And I think that's a very good thing. But um, you can't tell people how they're to respond about this. And the issues of uh, the past in the area of abuse are so intensely personal and private for so many people. It's not surprising there's very deep feelings indeed. 
So what to make of that answer from the most senior person in the Church of England? Well, on the one hand, the Archbishop makes a reasonable point about the Queen. If someone's life partner dies, we shouldn't really begrudge them for who they seek support from, although it is slightly different when it's all on national television. The point about being forgiving is more obviously contentious in this case. He's right that forgiveness is important even for people who've done bad things. But that makes more sense in the case of a friend or a family member. There's little reason the public should accept someone as worthy of power and privilege if they've done something deeply wrong, which Prince Andrew has. There is one part of what Justin Welby said there, though, that is just out-and-out horseshit. It's that Prince Andrew deserves credit for trying to make amends. Of course, no evidence was given for this claim, which is unsurprising, given that everything in the public domain suggests the opposite to be the case. For one, that's because making amends usually requires accepting you've done something wrong. Yet this is how Prince Andrew explained his visit to Jeffrey Epstein's New York mansion after he was convicted for sex offences with minors. It was a convenient place to stay. There's, I mean, I mean, I've gone through this in my mind so many times. At the end of the day, um, uh, uh, with the benefit of all the hindsight that one could have, um, it was definitely the wrong thing to do. Um, but at the time, I felt it was the it was the honourable and right thing to do. And I, I admit fully that that that, that my judgment was probably coloured by my. Um, tendency to be too honourable, but that's just the way it is. Remember, on that trip, Andrew stayed at Epstein's mansion for several days and attended a dinner party with him. Oh, so honourable. What an honourable man. Too honourable, if anything. This is how Andrew responded when asked if, knowing what he does now, he regrets his friendship with Epstein. Now, still not. And the reason being is that, that the, the people that I met... Um, and the opportunities that I was given to learn, um, either by him or because of him, were actually very useful. He himself, um, n- not as it were as close as you might think, we're not, we're, we, weren't, we weren't that close. So therefore, I mean, yes, I would go and stay in his house, but that was because of his girlfriend, not because of him. Of course, that interview was given before the girlfriend in question got found also guilty of international sex trafficking. That's Ghislaine Maxwell, of course. Now, we should be clear, we don't know whether or not Andrew himself committed sex offences. He hasn't been charged or convicted and his settlement with Virginia Dufresne is not an admission of guilt. But even knowing that Epstein was a prolific sex offender who used rich and powerful friends to launder his reputation, even knowing that, The rich and powerful Prince Andrew, who you could argue was used, doesn't regret the friendship because it was useful. It was useful to him. That is not making amends. He is told, literally, looking back at what happened, do you feel like maybe you were used to launder the reputation of a prolific, horrific sex offender, groomer of minors? Do you feel like, do you regret that? No, uh, because it was uh, quite useful for me, actually. I got to meet some really interesting people. So no, I don't regret it. I'd do it again. Dahlia, where is this idea of him making amends coming from? What the hell is the Archbishop talking about here? Well, to me, it's indicative that we have learned 
so little. Um, despite the Me Too movement, despite the incredible work of so many of Epstein's survivors, including Virginia Dufre, to really highlight the fact that this is a systemic problem, that the problem of sexual violence, of sexual abuse, including of children, is endemic in so many powerful institutions in our society, ranging from the media to the government to, to the Church of England, which is, again, another reason why I'm quite shocked that the Archbishop would come out with a statement like this, considering that things aren't exactly clean um, in his back garden, not his personally, but there are systemic sexual abuse scandals within religious institutions. And so the idea that this is the matter of one man's guilt or not guilt, or one man's personal feelings about whether or not he is making amends is completely irrelevant here. The question here is what systems were in place that enabled this sexual violence to happen on this scale with the knowledge of so many people and so many institutions? What was in place that meant that when girls rang the alarm on what was taking place, that they weren't taken seriously, that nothing came of it? And that goes for Epstein, but it also goes for the BBC. It goes for Hollywood. It goes for all of these different institutions where sexual violence has been shown to be a systemic issue. And of course, you know, if, if someone was genuinely trying to make amends, you know, if it was genuinely the case that, you know, Prince Andrew was friends with someone who did horrific things and that he didn't know about it and that he had nothing to do with it, the fact that he was so chummy with him after he was convicted of such offenses. It just goes to show how little regard Andrew and his advisors around him uh, hold these girls that are now women. They clearly thought that, you know, they would never, that these women would never gain enough power um, to question them, which is something that obviously um, they have proved wrong. But one thing again that just really frustrates me in that exchange is that. Prince Andrew and his feelings and his perspective is so hyper visible. It's so, it is the object of discussion constantly. You know, should we forgive Prince Andrew? How should we feel about Prince Andrew? Should he be allowed to uh, re enter public life? How does his mum feel about this all? Completely absent within all of that is any conversation about what we as a society owe. The girls that were abused and oh, the girls that will continue to be abused if we do not actually take this seriously as a systemic issue. Even when, you know, Prince Andrew in that interview talked about how he was a victim of his own honor. Where is your honor when we're talking about the victims of your so-called friend? The absolute absence of their humanity both in the eyes of Prince Andrew, but also in the eyes of the Archbishop of Canterbury there, really shows that the kind of logic where these young girls and these children are essentially seen as their needs and their humanity is absent in the face of the desire for power um, of their abusers. It goes to show that like that attitude has still not shifted. And so we still have so much work to do. But for me, the, the absence of the humanity and the pain of the victims um, in that entire exchange um, when talking about humility and forgiveness and compassion uh, is really, really what struck to me.
I think that is the most important thing to take out of that because, it, you know, in a way, he tried to be thoughtful with his answer. I mean, I think he said a bunch of stuff that was nonsense, but the main issue with it was the absence, right? It was that he, he said, oh, abuse is sensitive. That's why people have strong feelings. But he didn't talk about, you know, the actual girls that Epstein abused, which is, which, you know, should be front and center in, in that conversation, of course. Thank you so much for joining me this evening, Dahlia. Enjoy your, your two bank holidays. You too. <laughs> Although, as Moya Lovia-McLean has written in a viral media article, you should go check out Two Days Bank Holiday. That is not worth it. This is not a good deal. We've been giving them millions for years. Two days off is not enough. We should just have more bank holidays anyway for cool things, not for the royals, for stuff that's you know actually interesting, valuable. We will wrap up there, I should say. Tisky Sour will be taking the bank holiday off this time around, so there won't be another live show this week. However... We won't be leaving you without something to watch this Friday at 7pm. We'll have a feature for you on royal propaganda and you'll be taken to the page for that stream when this one ends. So from us, enjoy your four days off if you have them. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.